Good afternoon, everyone. This is Aaron Bauer with the Yale Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Adam Jasney coming on to talk about stroke in the young. Welcome, Dr. Jasney. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. So this is definitely an interesting topic. It's one that I feel like comes up every now and then on the on the clinical wards, and it's always some of my favorite pathology on the stroke service. So I'm definitely excited to go through this one. How about to start, you just give us a bit of a definition about what we're really working with when it comes to stroke in the young. Yeah. So I think for our purposes, uh, for the purposes of this talk, at least, we're going to talk about ischemic stroke as opposed to broader definitions. And when we say young, we really mean anybody who's about my age or a little bit younger. That's kind of my definition of somebody who's you know younger than we would expect to have a stroke. Now, of course, that's going to vary by the individual. So the more formal definitions are, you know, we're thinking young adults age 15 or 18 to about 50 years old. Some definitions, some ranges go a little bit higher up to 60 or 65, but mostly we're thinking late teens, uh, young adults up to age 50 or 60 is how we would define somebody who's young. As I get older, that might change. (laughs) Fair enough. Always a bit of a moving target there. And then in terms of, I guess, some of the epidemiology, what are the general like kind of stroke rates that we see in, in this demographic? Is this a common thing? It it is more than you would think. So as much as we think about stroke as a disease of older folks, uh, largely based on things like the prevalence of vascular risk factors, atrial fibrillation, kind of classical stroke risk factors, 10 or 15% of strokes occur in folks under 50 years old. And again, maybe we should have gone back, but this is even excluding stroke in children, perinatal strokes, which is a whole separate subject. But 10 or 15% of strokes happen in people who are between age 18 and 50 years old. People do tend to recover better at this age, a little bit more plasticity. People might bounce back better at these ages than when they're older. But there are other things that we worry about as far as accumulated disability or future years of stroke risk uh, that may be less salient in different populations, older populations. And then I thought one thing that was a little bit interesting when I was looking this up is it seems like the, the general trend for the incidence of stroke in the young over the last several decades has kind of increased with time. Could you touch upon maybe some reasons for that? It's really interesting. Uh, We're getting better at treating and preventing stroke, and we have better options for control of standard vascular risk factors. So why would there be an increasing incidence of stroke in the young? Part of that may be that we're detecting it more, that we're getting more MRIs, more testing if somebody comes in with maybe transient symptoms or things like that. But we're also worrying more about the burden of these modifiable risk factors, about these typical vascular risk factors, even in younger populations. And so people might have more high blood pressure, might have more diabetes. We worry about smoking, drinking, substance use, things like that, as well as other lifestyle factors. And these are going to increase the burden of stroke, even in younger people. Are there any like gender considerations that we should be aware of in this demographic more so than others? There is a higher incidence of stroke in the young among women than men. A variety of reasons for this, whether it's uh, there's autoimmune conditions, the prevalence or incidence of autoimmune conditions hypercoagulable states or hormonal changes that may be associated with that, some other factors as well. And this is more when we're looking at the younger end of that uh, of that age spectrum, 18 to 30 years old, really, it's more of a consideration. And there are, of course, other disparities as well, whether that's regional, whether that's um, ethnicity or racial. A lot of these factors are present in a lot of different stroke age groups and stroke in the young is certainly no exception. Definitely a pretty good definition to work with, kind of thinking more along 50 to 60, kind of being the upper end of things here. We've talked a little bit about the frequency 
um, usually around 10 to 15 percent. And then some of the reasons why these trends are increasing and the gender considerations with a little bit more common in women. So I think, you know, with that as a framework of just kind of trying to understand a little bit of the definitions that we're working within, I think we can kind of move on to really what's going to be the, the, the meat of this talk which is going to be some of the etiologic and diagnostic considerations of stroke in the young. So for me, I'm definitely really dependent on frameworks of trying working within frameworks. And for me, I stroke in the young is still ultimately a stroke. So the way I kind of went through and organized this talk would be a little bit of going through the classical toast classification for four strokes. So kind of looking at large artery atherosclerosis, cardioembolism, small vessel occlusions, and then kind of the other buckets of kind of the odd things and atypical things, which is all the stroke of other determined etiologies, which at least in this demographic does come up a little bit more commonly than in our in our older population. That's true. So as much as we do talk about the importance of the traditional stroke risk factors, uh, even among younger people, we are worried more about that category of other causes of stroke. And I'm glad that you said buckets, because that's actually how I think about it as well. There's different buckets of causes of stroke. There's the things that are going to cause problems with your arteries. So your high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, smoking, other things uh, that might contribute to vasculopathies or things like sleep apnea, drinking, things like that. And those can cause your small vessel strokes, your lacunar strokes, or they can cause, cause large artery atherosclerosis, causing artery to artery embolus or in situ atherosclerosis. Those are some of those risk factors there. I think of the second bucket as primarily cardioembolic, proximal embolic from that source. That's something we more classically are seeing in somebody maybe who's older with atrial fibrillation, but there are reasons that younger people might have that as well, whether that's early atrial fibrillation, other types of cardiomyopathies or cardiac pathologies. And then our third bucket is all the other stuff. You know, the bucket that you've mentioned there, all the other stuff. And all that other stuff is interesting. It's a really interesting discussion to say, you know, when do we need to think about that? When is that likely to be contributing to your stroke? And, you know, what, to what extent should we pursue this? And that's, that's, I think a big, could be a, a big focus of our conversation today. I do want to also mention there's a fourth category, which is cryptogenic. Now, cryptogenic is not a cause of stroke. Cryptogenic just means we've done our due diligence. We've, we've done a pretty thorough evaluation and we've not been able to find a cause for the stroke, but it's an important conceptual way to approach it. Cryptogenic is not a stroke cause. Cryptogenic is me scratching my head saying, I'm not sure. Yeah, I do feel like a few patients, at least in the beginning of things, do end up having that kind of definition when they leave the hospital from the first time. And then as the picture becomes clearer with time, you know, maybe they get out of that cryptogenic bucket. And that is a cryptogenic, uh, you know, us saying that your stroke is cryptogenic is more common in strokes in the young than it is in folks who are older. Um, we are more likely to find what we think of as a cause of stroke or a plausible cause of stroke in somebody who's a little bit older, somebody who comes into the hospital at 30 with an ischemic stroke is more likely 40 or more percent chance perhaps of being termed cryptogenic, especially at the end of that initial evaluation. I guess moving forward, we have to, you know, in terms of, you know, getting everything ordered by diagnostics, really, we're going to be doing the, the normal stroke workup, and then it's going to become picking and choosing the additional studies we need. So most of these patients will come through, they'll have their CT head, their CTA head and neck, looking at the vessels, MRI brain to look at their actual stroke. 
the cardiac evaluation, at least with an echo, ruling out MI with troponins, ruling out arrhythmias with telemetry, and then some of the normal vascular risk factors, looking at hemoglobin A1Cs, LDL, and TSH. And I guess, you know, moving forward, the rest of the additional workup will be a little bit more specific. I would agree with that. You should definitely look for all the usual suspects first. With the caveat that it's worth noting that there are regional and even institutional differences in how that's done. So you said, oh, let's get an MRI brain for every stroke patient, and maybe somebody at a different hospital or in a different region, that's not their routine practice. And so there are different ways to approach it, but I think our thorough approach is, is exactly what you had said. So now with that bit of setup, I think let's delve into at least some of those big etiologic buckets that you've you've described. I think one of the things that we you uh, alluded to a little bit is large artery athero and small vessel disease. So starting with large artery atherosclerosis, generally we're thinking about this as some of the the upper end of our stroke in the young right. I saw usually around 40 to 49 kind of years of age. So towing the line there, is that more or less right? Say so, yeah, especially if we're thinking about our typical vascular disease. If we're thinking about atherosclerosis, it just takes time for your arteries to marinate in risk factors long enough for that to become an issue for plaque to grow. And so, you, it does take longer for that. There are other vasculopathies that can affect younger people that are more specific. We also have to worry about atypical causes of accelerated atherosclerosis, whether that's a familial hypolipidemia whether that's uh, radiation exposure for maybe a cancer in the head or neck, these are things that can also cause accelerated athero. I also want to give a plug for other causes of artery to artery embolus, which we're still developing an appreciation for, but something like a carotid web, even though it's not your typical atherosclerosis, I think we have a growing body of evidence that supports that pathophysiologically as a potential cause for stroke in the young, and in particular, recurrent stroke in the young, a separate subject, perhaps, but I think it's something that's worth aggressively evaluating for and treating if you do find a carotid web. So outside of kind of evaluating for those traditional cardiovascular risk factors, thinking about those other causes that could lead to accelerated atherosclerotic disease, like you were saying, inflammatory conditions, inherited dyslipidemias, radiation, where were you going to likely find your answer in a diagnostic workup? Is it usually going to be on the angiography or Doppler or something along those lines? Strong clinical history, Aaron. That's the, that's the important thing, right? And then, yeah, based on the imaging, is that's where we're going to see it. I, I tend to have a preference for CT angiography as uh, something that I'm frequently getting on my patients in the acute setting, as something that gives me data on the tissue, the surrounding tissue, as well as the lumen of the vessel and the morphology of any plaque. MR angiography is an option. Carotid ultrasound gives you a more limited picture, but it's non-invasive. It doesn't have radiation, which is, of course, a consideration, especially for our younger patients. But it's going to be the imaging that tells you whether there's large artery, large artery atherosclerosis, really, at the end of the day. And your strong clinical history skills will tell you why. Very good point. We can never get away too far from the clinical history, especially as neurologists. And if we want to, you know, if we want to go old school as well, uh, your physical exam can give you clues as well. But from my understanding, listening for a carotid brewery isn't necessarily sensitive or specific. So it's a good practice to have perhaps, but I wouldn't hang my hat on that if you're thinking about the presence of hemodynamically significant stenosis. And then I guess shifting the focus a little bit more to these small vessels. So what are we generally thinking about more in small vessel disease? Small vessel disease, we're thinking a lot of these same risk factors. So if we think about the pathophysiology, 
lipohyalinosis perhaps, of these small perforator vessels. That's going to come with age and genetics. I can't necessarily control those, but hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, smoking, and some other vascular risk factors, uh, sleep apnea, alcohol use, if it's heavy or even if it's intermittent binge drinking, certain vasculopathies or just additional stress on these small vessels can be associated with substance use, things like cocaine or other stimulants. So all of these can contribute to more of these small vessel risk. In addition, there are certain genetic conditions that have a predilection for small vessel vasculopathy in different patterns. Uh, I think one of the more common ones, at least that I came across and wanted to talk about here, um, was definitely catacil and carousel, which is you know something that we don't necessarily clinically all the time, but it's definitely a very a very testable process. Uh, so I can definitely go through that in a little bit of detail if that sounds good to you, Doctor Jasney. It's going to be on your boards, and the, you know the the genes involved in these will be on your boards, and they're relevant for you to know as well. So by all means, please. So for catacil and carousel, essentially breaking down the actual kind of names, it's cerebral autosomal dominant and or autosomal recessive angiopathy with subcortical infarcts and leukoencephalopathy. So the difference in the CAD and the CARE is just dominant versus recessive in terms of their inheritance. For catacil, the gene that's going to be tested will be the NOTCH3 gene that's going to be on chromosome 19. For carousel, it'll be the HTRA gene on chromosome 10. The presentation for these, generally what you're going to see in the history, or at least here in the history, is going to be some migraine with aura, history of ischemic attacks, kind of a, a cognitive decline. And we've touched on this in our kind of rapidly progressive dementia as well. Um, and then psychiatric manifestation. So commonly they see depression, less likely some psychosis, paranoia, and aggression. And those are kind of the clinical presentations that are more classic for these pathologies. And on imaging, there is going to be a pretty heavy burden of those lacunar infarcts. So kind of getting at that small vessel type of process underlying. You'll see a lot in the basal ganglia, the thalamus, the pons. And characteristically, when we're talking about the leukoencephalopathy that is shared with these disease processes, initially the pattern that will that you will see on MRI is going to be hyperintensities in the anterior temporal lobes and the external capsule. And then this progresses to much more diffuse leukoencephalopathy with time and as symptoms and, you know, disease burden accumulates. Is there anything that you, you could add for that one, Dr. Jasnik? I think you said it well. I do want to emphasize that anterior temporal predilection. I think that is a good clue that you want to think about catacil or carousel. From a, from a board standpoint, this is something that'll be high yield. It's something that you'll want to think about in this classic clinical presentation. It's worth knowing that there can be variable presentations and those seem to correlate with what specific mutation somebody might have on the NOTCH3 gene, for example. Clinically speaking, if you see a patient with catacil or carousel, you're gonna to wanna to do your best to control their vascular risk factors, reduce stroke risk, but also offer what support you can with regard to their cognitive concerns, their mental health concerns and other things because unlike many vascular diseases, this really is a progressive disease. Yeah, and definitely in that case, any any additional support that we can really mobilize for them and the family is always important and always appreciated from the from the experience of cases that I've seen. So that covers the first two big buckets, at least, with small vessel and large artery. I think moving forward, if you want to talk a little bit about cardioembolism, which is does have some interesting considerations, especially in, in the young. 
I think, you know, to start, usually what we think of when we see patients with cardioembolism on the stroke service, or really are, at least my mind, goes, goes to AFib. Um, but that's definitely a much lower incidence in young adults than our elderly patients. Generally, just a lot of cardiac monitoring will eventually get us to that, maybe plus or minus some associated atrial pathology we can see on echoes with like dilation. Definitely a little bit of a less common thing, at least in this young adult population, correct? It's true. Uh, we think about atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter as these thrombogenic arrhythmias, but both of those are more common ages 60 and up. You may see them in younger patients with some kind of conduction abnormality or patients who are in their 40s and their 50s, but it's not as common a cause of cardioembolic strokes in young people. And so in young people, maybe we're thinking about other causes of strokes that may come from the heart, whether there is a congenital cardiac pathology, a congenital cardiomyopathy, or some other, even an acquired cardiomyopathy with a depressed ejection fraction, areas of a kinetic wall, areas of aneurysm, things that may be thrombogenic in that case. Additionally, there's other categories of things we want to think about from the heart, in addition to atrial fibrillation, in addition to depressed ejection fraction or cardiomyopathies. We could think about cardiac tumors, so you know, masses, lesions, other things that might be on the heart, endocarditis, and PFO. Cardiac tumors are, and, and other cardiac pathology, I would say, there's a, a wide variety of them, everything from myxomas to fibroelastomas. You can think about trabeculae or uh, Chiari networks, things like that. Uh, a lot of these are not really thrombogenic, but you may find them on an echo and you may wonder if they're thrombogenic, especially if it's you don't have anything else. And so this is an area where you do want to do a thorough evaluation. As we talk about cardiac evaluation, TTE is a our common practice to get a transthoracic echocardiogram is common. And we may more frequently get a transesophageal echocardiogram in our young patients looking for some of these less common pathologies. We may find things that, that may or may not be thrombogenic, that may or may not be associated with the stroke, but we're going to be looking for these things a little bit more in our younger patients. Endocarditis, unfortunately, we see a lot of that. Sometimes that, not infrequently, I would say, that relates to IV drug use, and that's a common reason for it. But there are a lot of other reasons people might have that as well. Maybe they've got a rheumatic valve or some other valve pathology. Maybe they've got endocarditis of a native valve because of dental infection, because of other bloodstream infections, because of luck of the draw. Uh, all of these are things that we might, we might worry about. And endocarditis is a really important thing to consider when it comes to stroke because our treatment is so different than everything else we think about for stroke. Treatment options, as you know, Aaron, we're thinking about for stroke often involve antithrombotic therapy, typical risk factor management, right? Would you, you know, but, but why would I not want to do that? Why would I not want to take that approach, Aaron, in somebody with endocarditis? So the risk here is just the hemorrhage associated with embolic strokes in the setting of endocarditis. It's just my understanding it's always those those vessels that are affected are just much more friable, much more inflamed. I mean, they're essentially infected in a way when I think about it. So the, the hemorrhage risk associated with those treatments is just a little or a lot of it higher than our, our typical stroke patients. It's absolutely true. And so when you've got a stroke related to endocarditis, especially if there are mycotic aneurysms, myconic meaning they are, mycotic meaning they are morphologically similar in appearance to mushrooms. Not that they're caused by a fungus because they are typically bacterial, but mycotic aneurysms are so-called because they look like mushrooms if you look at them really close up. But with or without mycotic aneurysms, stroke from endocarditis likes to bleed. And so you really don't want to anticoagulate these folks. 
maybe until your hand is forced because they need valvular surgery, right? But you don't want to, if you are aware of somebody having endocarditis, if you think that that is the cause of their stroke, then that is a contraindication to thrombolytic therapy in the acute setting. That said, you don't always know, and it can be really challenging. So maybe on your right exam, maybe on your boards, there's going to be these classic presentations, somebody with fever, malaise, joint pains, night sweats. But in clinical practice, a lot of people don't have that. You might have a mild leukocytosis, but that's not specific. A lot of people, I think 50% or more in a study we looked at in Cincinnati, don't have fever when they present with stroke uh, due to endocarditis. You may find some of these classic lesions in other body parts, Janeway lesions on the palms and soles, ocular nodes in the pads of your finger or your toes, Roth spots in the eyes, might find a heart murmur. And these are things that are worth looking for but you may or may not, they may not, may or may not be present in your patient. Yeah. I will say those cases are always very interesting for me when I'm on service, mostly just the the conversations that need to be had about gauging when it's safe to do those surgeries, gauging when it is safe to do the anticoagulation and antiplatelet. So it definitely is a very interesting academic question and a hard one. It, it is. It is. I think it, uh, I think it brings up two good points when we think about medicine in general. Number one, of course, safe is a relative term. Everything is a risk versus benefit and what timing is best. And number two, I think probably, you know, if if your doctor and especially if your neurologist finds your case to be interesting, you know, that's kind of a reason for concern because the things that we find interesting are either concerning pathologies or unusual pathologies, not the straightforward bread and butter stuff. It's never a, a good prognostic sign when a lot of people are running in and looking at the computer. Oh, look at this. This is fascinating. <laughs> you ever see this before. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, it's important for us to get together to talk about these cases and to learn about them. And that's one thing I really appreciate about our group at Yale, for example, is that we have those opportunities Uh, within our discipline and and interdisciplinary wise uh, to talk about interesting cases and and try to help them. And then would you be able to touch a little bit on uh, PFOs or patent for MAO valleys? They're definitely a very interesting one for me as well. Indeed, indeed. Uh, A patent for amino valley is just, uh, you know, something that we essentially we all have that uh, in the uh, in the prenatal period in utero. Uh, and in 20 or 25% of the population, the, the PFO, the patent, the foramen of valley does not fully close. And we call that a patent foramen of valley. It's in 20, 25% of the population. It is a potential cause for stroke, but I think it's important to remind people that it's not necessarily a smoking gun. So a lot of people have PFOs and it doesn't necessarily cause stroke in a lot of them. And people with PFOs still very commonly have strokes caused by other things. By other, So you don't necessarily stop looking just because you found a PFO and you don't necessarily close every PFO that you find. I think that requires a certain degree of consideration. It is something that we are going to look for more in our younger patients. And it is something that we're going to be more inclined to consider closure and perhaps pursue closure in, in our younger patients, especially given the results of some recent trials. So we did have a few recent trials that found that the benefit of closure of PFOs in appropriately selected patients, Uh, not to get too much into the weeds, but essentially they looked at individuals under 60 with really cryptogenic strokes, despite a good evaluation. They compared PFO closure plus aspirin or plus antithrombotic therapy versus antithrombotic therapy alone. The initial evaluations of these trials didn't necessarily show a statistically significant benefit, 
But when you look on the longer term basis, when they looked five, 10 years out, then you found more of a benefit with a number needed to treat about 13. So about for every 13 PFOs we close inappropriately selected patients, we might, you know, we might reduce the risk of one stroke. And that's really for, for cryptogenic strokes only is who they included in these. Gotcha. And in terms of obviously the discussion that happens in order to figure out who is a good candidate for a PFO closure could be a talk unto itself. Um, are there any like common scores that we can utilize, you know, kind of on a quick bedside, just as like students kind of learning just to have a quick gauge? I think that's a great idea. There is the ROPE score, R-O-P-E, Risk of Paradoxical Embolism score, uh, that is commonly used and, and considers factors such as the patient's age, their, their risk factors, whether the stroke is cortical or not, and these types of things to kind of estimate the probability their stroke is associated with the PFO. And these are the types of things that also weigh into our discussions at an inter interdisciplinary group that we have here uh, we talk among our cardiologists and stroke neurologists about whether we think a stroke was caused by PFO and whether we think it's worth closing a PFO that we found. And now I feel like as a PGY2, when I was first, you know, rotating on the stroke service a little bit more formally, whenever we found a PFO, I always just instantly in my head reflexed, have to order the ultrasounds of the legs. Is that generally a good practice? And is there ever a need for additional imaging? I think that uh, that's going to be another one of those situations where institutional practice varies. I think that if you have a cryptogenic stroke and a PFO, it's not unreasonable to look for a DVT in the lower extremities. Uh, there are people who I think can reasonably argue that unless you have symptoms suggestive of a DVT, it may or may not be worth that look. Uh, there have been a few studies, including one called pelvis, showing that MRV neography, MRV of the pelvis, can not infrequently, I think the original study showed 20% of the time, they might have found a DVT in the pelvis or evidence of May-Thurner syndrome as a potential cause of somebody's stroke. Clinical practice may not match those numbers exactly, and I don't know that everybody is routinely getting MRVs of the pelvis, but it's something that you can think about as part of a thorough evaluation. Again, as we talk about the thorough, you know, how thorough should you be? in evaluating a stroke in general, in particular a stroke in somebody who's younger. Awesome. Thank you for elaborating a little bit on that. That's definitely one that even for me is still a little bit of mysticism at times. So I think that's a really good kind of overview of the cardioembolism we've talked about, you know, keeping in mind AFib, although less common, the cardiomyopathies, cardiac tumors, endocarditis, and the PFO. So I think at this point, maybe we can transition into some of the, the others, that other bucket that we were talking about originally. And I think one place to start is maybe if we could kind of go through some of the thrombophilias and that workup. Um, we can think about either inherited congenital thrombophilias or acquired thrombophilias. Thrombophilia, of course, meaning that there's a tendency to form clots. I will say that most of these, especially the inherited, the genetic types, tend to cause more venous problems than arterial. And if we think about stroke as an arterial occlusion, Absent a PFO or some other pathology, maybe a venous sinus thrombosis, venous clots are not really expected to cause stroke. And so a factor V Leiden or a prothrombin gene mutation, those types of things are more going to be associated with venous events than arterial events. We can also think of antithrombin deficiency, about protein CNS deficiency, although those values, you know, the protein CNS in particular are not necessarily going to be 
very reliable tests in the acute setting, especially in somebody who's presenting with an acute stroke. Uh, people have different feelings about MTHFR mutations and hyperhomocysteinemia. Uh, I don't pursue that as much these days, but those are some of the inherited kind of genetic types. I do look more for and sometimes find antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, and that can cause arterial events. There are specific criteria for this. And really what we want to look for, uh, I, I typically use the Sapporo criteria or the revised Sapporo criteria. And what you're looking for is essentially significant abnormalities in certain labs repeated 12 weeks apart. Uh, there are different ways to approach this, and I'm not going to say which way is right or wrong, but generally speaking, you may start with kind of your initial standard evaluation, your antiphospholipid labs, which are maybe going to include a PTTLA, lupus anticoagulant. Maybe there's a silica clotting time or a hexagonal phase associated with that or dilute Russell's viper venom time, DRVVT. These are some of our initial screening. Specific antibodies you're going to be looking for are beta-2 glycoprotein and anticardiolipin antibodies. In particular, you're really looking for IgG or IgM. IgA is less supportive. And really by the criteria, you want those values to be over 40 to be supportive of the diagnosis of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. The upper limited normal on these is significantly lower than that, ballpark 15. Uh, so, you know, somebody might have a value of 20 where that's still elevated, but not necessarily, quote, significantly elevated. That's an area for consideration. Anyway, perhaps I've said too much, but long story short, you're going to want to look for these kind of initial reflex labs. You're going to want to look for beta-2 glycoprotein or anticardiolipin antibodies. You're going to want to repeat those 12 weeks later. But if you do find evidence of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, I do think that's a compelling potential cause for stroke. And I think that you should, in many cases, treat that. You're typically going to treat that with uh, with Coumadin or a, a vitamin K antagonist because direct oral anticoagulants don't seem to be as effective for this condition. I definitely think out of all of the thrombophilias, at least antiphospholipid syndrome is definitely the one that I feel like comes up the most clinically is likely the most relevant one as well. And I think that holds through with a lot of the current recommendations that are out there from national society recommendations at this time. And again, perhaps going a bit far afield, but they're just uh, part of it depends on what you look for. And we may not look for prothrombin gene mutations when we're working up a patient in the hospital because it's harder to get that testing done. And we also may get somebody who is a factor five Leiden heterozygote. And we don't necessarily know what to do with that information. That's a slightly increased clotting risk. But if we're only talking on a scale of two to five, as opposed to higher, you know, is that necessarily our cause? So part of that, you know, I think there may be some bias at the end of the day and what we talk about with you and therefore what you get exposed to. Gotcha. And I feel like usually for these, we usually are involving our, our hematology colleagues as well. Quite often. And I really appreciate their feedback on this. And getting back to what we talked about before, it is another important area of getting a good history. Any personal or family history of DVT or PE any history of multiple miscarriages, because that can be a sign of hypercoagulability, especially with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. These are things that people may not be always comfortable talking about, but are important things to discuss. And then I guess just to round out some of this, I mean, there's the number of things that can lead to prothrombotic states is like BAST um, and is definitely outside the scope of this talk, but always considering like estrogen containing contraceptives, other rheumatologic conditions, just systemic inflammation, and then to a degree, malignancy, if there's anything that is kind of coming up 
in the clinical history, any risk factors, family history of cancers, I think, you know, there is sometimes a bit of a low threshold to make sure that those malignancy screens are kind of up to date. I would agree with that. And again, it's something that we're going to maybe look into more detail with in a cryptogenic stroke in a younger patient. Maybe that's the person who you, at the very least, say, hey, talk to your primary care doc and make sure that you're up to date on all these screenings, especially if there's a family history. Our practice is often to you know, do some kind of hand scan, a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis, a testicular ultrasound. That may not be something that's universal, but in stroke in the young, that's something that we are at least often thinking about. Mm-hmm. Additionally, another antithrombotic or another prothrombotic state, rather, that is apropos, I think, we do find different ways that COVID-19 infection seems to be associated with stroke. Whether that is in a hypercoagulability that may be mediated by antiphospholipid antibodies or other antibodies, whether it's an endotheliopathy uh, that we've taken to sending von Willebrand labs to try to look for that in our COVID-19 patients with stroke, or whether there are other things, whether it's cardiomyopathy, some other arterial pathologies that I think we're going to talk about shortly, or other problems like that. So there's, uh, yeah, the, the bucket is the bucket is large. Oh, yes, definitely. There's a lot of considerations within that bucket specifically. I think you were alluding to maybe for the next some of these arterial causes. One of the more common causes in um, young adults for stroke is actually going to be dissections, which are a very interesting pathology to talk about. So would you be able to kind of define a little bit about what we mean with arterial dissections and generally cervically? Yeah. So, and it's, it, you're right that it is a not uncommon cause of stroke, especially in younger people. So it's almost a shame that it's taken us this long to get to it. We've had such good conversation here. Um, <laughs> but arterial dissections, basically you and I might describe it as a tear in, an, in a blood vessel wall. But I, th- I find that if you say that to a patient, that's very, you know, it's very confusing because if I say your blood vessel wall tears, their first thought is, why am I not bleeding out? Why am I not spurting blood into whatever? Uh, and so you, you have to think about, you know, what is the anatomy of a vessel, right? At the very least, we've got to think about the three different layers, the intima, the media, externa. And if you think about an injury to the middle layer of that, maybe that, you know, the vessel wall maybe pulls back, peels off, uh, works better with some graphics or at least some type of visual. But just talking about that, you can imagine that that might be thrombogenic that a clot might form in the vessel wall and that clot can propagate or embolize downstream. And that's really primarily the pathophysiology we think about with arterial dissections. Arterial dissections cause about one in five strokes in young adults. And that happens at at all different ages. Uh, There are common places that can happen uh, in the cervical carotid, in the V2 or V3 as it's moving around some bones. There are different reasons dissections can happen. A lot of the time, they're going to be traumatic in one way or another, but a number of times they're also spontaneous as well, or at least we're not able to identify a cause for the dissection. There may be a predilection towards these in somebody with a connective tissue disorder. Sometimes we'll do further evaluation for that, whether that's with simple screening, something called a Baiton score, B-E-I-G-H-T-O-N, I believe it is, uh, as one way of screening for that. But not all vascular connective tissue problems necessarily correlate with other connective tissue problems. So sometimes genetic evaluation may be appropriate. You've seen patients with strokes caused by dissections. What treatment do we typically offer them? Oh, well, that in its own right is a bit of a discussion, isn't it? So my general approach that I've at least used on the wards 
is that if it's purely extracranial, we're going to be considering at least anticoagulation. Um, if it's intracranial, we're really going to be going with the antithrombotic agents, just given there is possibly an increased risk of at least hemorrhage or extension. But I know there are a few studies at this point that do kind of talk about that. Yeah, there, there, there are studies and enough studies that you're going to find differences of opinion, as you had implied. CADIS is our big earlier study. And a lot of people look at that and say, you know, CADIS comparing antiplatelet to anticoagulation. And these are older anticoagulants, vitamin K-based, in treatment of, of dissection. And if there's not a change in the risk of recurrent stroke, why introduce people to the higher risk? And so people might take that and say, you know, antiplatelet is reasonable. Uh, treat CAD, treat CAD uh, more recently came out just in 2021, was published in Lancet. Only about 200 patients, they were looking for non-inferiority of aspirin compared to anticoagulation, and they did not find aspirin to be non-inferior. takes a little parsing, but that's what they were looking for. But I think both of these trials are ultimately have, having major caveats, both as far as which patients uh, are included in them, how that reflects the patient population we see. Not, you know, they did not have the opportunity to use direct oral anticoagulants. And so there's going to be a wide variety in practice pattern in antithrombotic treatment for a dissection. And so I, I, I think, as you had said, intracranial spread of a dissection, we worry more about development of subarachnoid hemorrhage. And so we're more hesitant to use anticoagulation. There are characteristics that may push some people towards anticoagulation rather than antiplatelet treatment of a dissection, whether there's maybe a thrombus associated with it, whether it was, you know, whether there's definite ischemia downstream and the size of that ischemia. It is a uh, interesting topic, a broader topic, but I'm going to say that we can treat it. We should treat them with antithrombotic therapy and some of the details are going to vary. And then I feel like one thing that does come up not infrequently, particularly on testing is, is some of the imaging that's seen with dissections, because they can be, they can be pretty interesting and pretty di distinct. I guess the one that I've seen most commonly brought up is, is the flame sign with more of these carotid dissections. I, I'd suggest everyone kind of like Google that and at least take a, take a look at some of the classic angiography that's seen with the flame sign, but I've definitely seen it come up on a few tests at this point. I think that's a great thing to look for. I don't know whether it'll be on your boards, but clinically speaking, it's, it's important to remember that a pseudo occlusion may have a similar appearance. So if somebody has a carotid T occlusion or a distal carotid occlusion, and as you know, there's not a lot of branches, you know, from the carotid bifurcation to its terminus. So there's, if there's an occlusion distally, there's not going to be a lot of demand for blood. There's not, not a lot of demand for blood. Then your contrasted blood on your CT angiogram is not really going to make it up there. And so you're going to have kind of a tapering look at that carotid bifurcation that looks a lot like a dissection. I'm not sure if they're going to try to pull that over on you for your board. And I don't know how much we're supposed to get into clinically relevant stuff here for the purposes of this board review podcast, but I think it's something that neurology residents should be aware of. Oh, no, that's definitely a, a really good caveat. And I appreciate it. Uh, you're going to hear us talk a lot about fat sat imaging, about MR angiography of the brain with T1 fat sat, so saturating out the fat to try to make the arterial wall light up. Different places will use that to different degrees. It, it, we can have a whole separate conversation on its sensitivity and specificity, but it's worth noting that whatever sensitivity it has, it has tends to taper off after a few days after an acute injury. Gotcha. And I feel like most of these patients, especially if there's worry about thrombus, will 
generally be getting re-imaging at some point down the line. That's our practice typically to see how things are evolving. Sometimes people, uh, there's a whole spectrum of ways that things can go. I guess like a stroke, people can have a a vasculopathy, a vessel pathology that completely resolves. People can have progression of disease or it can remain stable or develop other features like a pseudoaneurysm down the road. Awesome. Thank you so much for going through the dissections. I think that wraps up some of the at least kind of other determined etiologies, at least the thrombophilias and the more common cervical artery dissections. And then there are a few that I wanted to talk about that are mostly going to be coming up as like tests, not necessarily clinically as relevant, but I figured we'd at least be able to mention a few. Um, The first one that I was thinking about was going to be Fabry's disease, which for some reason, these lysosomal storage disorders will never go away. They are always there. So Fabry's disease for everyone is going to be X-linked. The mutation is going to be on the GLA gene, and this will lead to dysfunction of the alpha galactosidase A enzyme. So that's going to be what generally will come up. Then you will have accumulation of globotriacilaceramide, which will kind of lie in the blood vessels and can preempt strokes. Classically, these patients will have acroparesthesias, um, particularly it's kind of like this pins and needle burning sensation of the hands and feet. They'll have the clinical clue like angiokeratomas, which are small red-black papules. They'll have hypohydrosis, corneal opacities, and then a litany of more systemic symptoms. So GI complaints, renal dysfunction, cardiac disease. And the thing usually that we get involved with is going to be strokes. Um, and the treatment here will be essentially just enzyme replacement. And then maybe Dr. Jasny, you could talk a little bit about MILAS, which is another of these kind of odder ones that comes up probably more in the testing situation than clinically. It's one of the things that, uh, you know, you may think about more than you actually find in clinical practice, kind of like a pheochromocytoma, where it's always, you know, uh, it's worth learning. It's important to learn about. It's often on a test. It's worth thinking about, but you're going to look for it a lot more often than you find it. There are a number of mitochondrial encephalopathies, MILAS, MERF, all these other ones. MILAS is kind of the classic with mitochondrial encephalomyopathy, lactic acidosis, and stroke or stroke-like episodes. It is mitochondrial, as I had said. There are going to be unusual patterns uh, of imaging. And so if you're thinking about MILAS with a stroke patient, it may be driven by stroke-like episodes as opposed to you know typical strokes themselves. It may have different areas of gemia looking changes in an MRI brain, but they evolve atypically over time and don't necessarily respect vascular territories. Patient might have short stature, exercise intolerance, different types of seizures, encephalopathy, things like that. You're going to find maybe you may expect to find an elevated lactate in their in their serum and their CSF, and you may end up with uh, evidence on a muscle biopsy as well of certain of these mitochondrial uh, disorders. There's always moya moya disease, which is for me a very fascinating pathology, and I know it. We can kind of clinically distinctiate it from moya moya syndrome, so we're just going to be focusing more on moya moya disease. For me, this you know like overall. It's going to be a non-atherosclerotic cerebrovascular structural abnormality. It's going to be involving the intracranial ICAs. They'll have progressive stenosis or even occlusion. And this ultimately will lead to compensation intracranially where you have a lot of these abnormally formed and pretty extensive collateral vessels. 
in order to compensate for that decreased intracranial blood flow. Is that is that more or less right, Dr. Jasney, as an approach to it? It is. It absolutely is. And I think the classic way of thinking about it, as you said, is Moya Moya disease versus Moya Moya syndrome, with the syndrome having other connective tissue features. I kind of think about it um, as at least there's a third category as well, about a Moya Moya pattern secondary to something else. So you may end up, you may have a patient with a genetic or otherwise caused Moya Moya disease. That is the only problem they have essentially. Or you may have somebody who in the setting of vascular risk factors, in the setting of sickle cell disease or something else, develops this Moya Moya pattern of vessels as a secondary process. To some extent, that doesn't matter as much because pathophysiologically, it's, it may be similar, but it may influence your treatments or your expectation of tolerance to treatment, for example. Somebody who has this pattern of vessel injury secondary to uncontrolled diabetes may not be a good candidate for surgical intervention if we think that the, you know, any bypass, for example, might go down as well in the setting of progressive atherosclerosis. Classically, what we're going to see on imaging with Moya Moya is this kind of puff of smoke as it, you know, is referred to in the name is that you'll have these abnormal, abnormal vascular collater collaterals on angiography. Um, and that's probably another thing that's probably worth at least a Google search real quick just to take a peek because it is something that's a little hard to describe um, just over the podcast format. I think those are some of the big things, at least to keep in mind with Moya Moya moving down the line. One more thing or one or two more things about Moya Moya. Um, there is a staging uh, or a grading uh, of Moya Moya, the Suzuki staging. And that's interesting just in that you see a progression of disease and then eventually a pseudo normalization of the vessels. So that may be something worth looking into detail if you're interested. Additionally, it's worth noting that Moya Moya pattern of vasculopathy can be associated with ischemic stroke as well as hemorrhagic stroke risk. And that's something where the calculus of those changes over the course of somebody's life. And that definitely comes into considerations when we think about treatment for those patients as well, which is always a very careful risk versus benefit. Unfortunately, we don't have ideal treatments. Oftentimes, these patients may benefit from antiplatelet therapy. Sometimes we have surgical options for direct or more commonly indirect bypass. So we can form anastomoses with, with some other vessels to help supply those downstream territories. So I think that ties up most of what we wanted to cover for Moya Moya. And the next pathology that we wanted to throw into this stroke in the young is going to be, I'd say, a relatively new pathology, given the talk of what we've been seeing for, for the rest of it, but a reversible cerebral vasoconstruction syndrome, or RCVS. Dr. Jasney, what do you generally think about when approaching somebody who's coming in with concern for RCVS? Like what, what's the typical demographic that we're, that we're considering? It, it can be just about anybody, but it is somebody we might, something we might think about more in somebody who's, you know, in that younger category, maybe in their forties or fifties are our typical ages, uh, but it can be pretty broad. It is more often uh, seen in, in women than men uh, at varying degrees and for varying reasons. And uh, as you said, it is a relatively newer description of a syndrome, although it's actually uh, come under many different names in the past. And so uh, it's essentially a collection of things that we think now, we now think carry a similar pathophysiology. Yeah, when I was doing reading on RCVS, it does seem like it's thought at this point, at least to be related to 
dysregulation of the cerebrovascular system, kind of on this spectrum of press or posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. From what I could see, most people who come in with this in a few cases that I've seen, they do complain of a pretty intense recurrent thunderclap headache, rarely associated with seizures. Um, and then you'll get those focal deficits, especially if you develop secondary ischemia or even hemorrhage, because it can go in either direction. And that's where maybe the name reversible is a bit of a misnomer, because while the vessel abnormalities in and of themselves are reversible, you may have permanent damage from this if that you know, vasospasm essentially causes ischemic stroke, causes subarachnoid hemorrhage, which might be more common in this. Um, and so you can get long-term uh, deficits from RCVS. And I think as we've kind of talked about a few times so far with this episode, you know, the clinical history is definitely an important one, I think, is one that I, I always have to remind myself, particularly when I'm approaching a patient where I'm concerned for RCVS, because there are several risk factors that go along with this pathology. Is that right? Risk factors is one way of thinking about it. I think potential triggers is maybe how I would conceptualize it. Things that we think of as possibly causing, possibly contributing to RCVS, to reversible cerebral vasoconstriction. What types of things do you think about? What types of things come to your mind, Aaron, if I'm asking you about what are triggers for RCVS? So the things that I generally think about are going to be and particularly in women of childbearing age is going to be, you know, pregnancy. If they were recently pregnant, just got out of a pregnancy, serotonergic agents. Um, so SSRIs, SNRIs, some of the anti-migraine medications like the triptans and ergots. And that's why, you know, I feel like that's definitely a careful consideration with people coming in with these headaches too. It's like, especially in RCVS, you don't want to accidentally be giving them, you know, your typical migraine abortives without thinking about it. Um, and then also I came across a few like immunotherapies like tacrolimus, cyclophosphide, and kind of going along, I guess, more the serotonergic and vasoactive um, illicit, illicit drugs like marijuana, cocaine, or ecstasy. I think that's fair. Uh, some of the classic and uh, maybe higher yield uh, things, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors used as antidepressants and for other reasons. Preeclampsia and eclampsia in particular can be associated with this. Uh, immunotherapy, tacrolimus, and others. Uh, and illicit drugs and this includes some of the ones we might typically think of as vasoactive, such as cocaine and amphetamines, but also things like marijuana, frequent marijuana use has been known to be a trigger for this. Diagnostically, what, what, do, we, what do you usually see on imaging that would make you concerned for RCVS in a patient coming in with stroke? There's kind of, a, and with or without stroke, this is some, but something you do want to think about even without ischemic stroke, but in somebody, you know, it's in the vascular, you know, in the vasculopathy family, right? Um, but classically speaking, you might see a kind of quote sausage on a string look. So this smoothly tapered vasoconstriction and vasodilation that looks different than maybe your flea bitten appearance of a vasculitis, or you know, or it doesn't look really like your classic vasculopathy. Often that's going to be multifocal. Rarely we might see it in just one or two vessels. Uh, you're going to really see it better on a conventional angiogram than CT angiography. CT angiography might not have the resolution to get to those medium or smaller size vessels uh, well enough to see it. And I think, Aaron, we've talked a lot about triggers and imaging and things like that. We haven't really said, though, what it is. You know, what might somebody come to the hospital with and how what might make us think about our CVS? So in that case, it really, I feel like the thing that comes up most frequently is kind of those recurrent thunderclap headaches almost concerning for like a subarachnoid originally, but just kind of recurrent 
physiology of it or presentation. It can, can be single as well. So recurrent uh, thunderclap, but it can be a single thunderclap headache as well. But certainly it's something you definitely want to think about and definitely don't want to miss if somebody comes to you with a thunderclap headache. It is not strictly speaking necessary for the diagnosis, but it is supportive. And then I think one thing that you did bring up is when we're looking at that imaging, you brought up the specter of vasculitis. How often do these people end up needing CSF analysis? If we have a clear case of of RCVS, uh, I don't think we're routinely pursuing lumbar puncture. If there's a question of what may be causing the patient's vasculopathy, what may be causing this irregularity in their vessels and their presentation, uh, then that's a situation where you're going to want to look for especially secondary causes of vasculitis or some other evidence, some other supportive evidence. And at least for management of RCVS, I generally came across maybe some recommendations for some calcium channel blockers like nemotipine, verapamil very good blood pressure control kind of in the interim. And then obviously, if there is a clear trigger, eliminating said trigger. Yeah. And that's easier said than done. Um, medically speaking, there's actually, there are actually limited data. There's limited supporting evidence for any of our treatments uh, for this. Uh, I may com- more commonly use verafamil, maybe magnesium as well as a potential benefit, blood pressure control, as you mentioned. Eliminating the precipitating factor is an important thing. Sometimes that can be challenging. If it's somebody who really is reliant on their SSRI or SNRI, they get a lot of benefit from it. Or somebody who, uh, you know, uh, the substance use is is a challenging thing to deal with. So there are reasons that that, maybe they're on immune suppression and that's a complex decision to change. So, but it is something that I, I, I recommend. And oftentimes I'll see recommendations for, you know, if somebody had our CVS that we think was provoked by an SSRI, we would recommend that they avoid SSRIs and SNRIs as to reduce the risk of a potential recurrence. And that can be a challenging thing. Yeah, it's definitely going to have a lot of nuances in getting them ready to get out of the hospital after an event like this in order to tee them up for as much success as possible moving forward. I think at this point, we're kind of wrapping things up. And the only last topic we wanted to touch on a little bit, because it is a very broad topic, but is definitely one that comes up, particularly in stroke in the young is going to be vasculitis. So kind of a pretty nice uh, transition out of RCVS. Knowing that vasculitis is a very broad topic, generally speaking, how what's your approach, at least to thinking about it in a differential type of perspective? It's a good question. Uh, as you said, I think vasculitis is another one of those things that we often think about. And we think about it a lot more often than we actually find it. It really is not a common cause of stroke, especially especially in the group we're talking about, Uh, especially if we're thinking about primary CNS angiitis, that really is extremely rare. And so absent evidence of a more systemic vasculitic process, it is really, you know, the condition in front of you is unlikely to be vasculitis. But there are situations where it's worth thinking about. If you've got the context of fevers, malaise, cognitive changes, more of a subacute and progressive process with headaches or encephalopathy, maybe some B symptoms like fevers and weight loss, things like that. If you have evidence that there's some other vasculitis going on, cutaneous or other organ systems, then you might be going more in that direction. There are specific vasculitides that 
you know, you want to think about, especially in, in certain populations. And so you never want to miss a case of giant cell arteritis or temporal arteritis, but that's something that's really rare uh, under 60 and that, you know, you, you'd be much less likely to think about in that case. You can have VZV or HIV associated vasculitis. And those are important things not to miss because those are things that we're going to treat in a different way. You can have a toxic vasculitis, whether from cocaine or an adulterant that's not uncommonly put into cocaine, amphetamines or other kind of stimulant vasoactive agents. These are things worth thinking about. Is there anything that when a patient's coming in and on their MRI, there are any like patterns that would have you a little bit more concerned for a vasculitic process more so than another type of atypical stroke syndrome? If you're looking at somebody's vessel imaging, if you're looking at a CT angiography or conventional angiogram, there's going to be particular patterns of multifocal narrowing, more irregular, less smooth, things like that, that may be vasculitic appearing. If somebody has evidence of strokes in multiple territories, a lot of what we do in medicine is pattern matching, right? And so if it's a pattern matching of an embolic looking stroke of undetermined source, that's one thing. But if it doesn't look like that, if we're thinking, if they, if there are multiple strokes, different territories, and they look like multiple small vessel strokes, that's uncommon. Or if there are strokes of different, but similar ages, you know, there's some that are acute, some that are subacute. Those might be things that push you down the direction of, do we need to pursue this evaluation? Do, you know, should we do conventional angiography, lumbar puncture, whatever workup you feel is appropriate? Gotcha. And obviously when we're thinking about vasculitis and we're already considering all of these different systemic and infectious, toxic, and even just primary angiitis of the CNS, you know, the treatment of these will be just as varied. It really depends on what the underlying cause is, yeah. Well, this has been a, a very enjoyable talk. It's definitely a very interesting one. So I really appreciate you taking the time and going through all of these different pathologies with us, Dr. Chastney. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'd like to maybe plug one more condition. Immune thrombocytopenic purpura is also a potential cause of stroke, including in younger people. And so if you have a patient who comes in with stroke, low platelets, plus minus other things, encephalopathy or things like that, that is a condition worth thinking about, especially because there are specific ways you want to treat that. You wouldn't necessarily want to platelet transfuse them in that case, for example. Again, as we had said earlier, stroke itself is a very broad topic. Uh, there are a number of etiologies. Stroke in the young is particularly interesting because even though we are seeing an increasing prevalence and attributable risk of classic vascular risk factors. There are a number of other things that can cause stroke in the young and some of these less common conditions, some of these congenital or genetic conditions, some of these zebras might be more prominent, might be more relevant to our stroke in the young patients. So taking the big picture view, talking about buckets as we had before, if you have a stroke in a younger patient, you want to do your due diligence for your kind of typical stroke risk factor bucket. You want to look for your typical stroke risk factors. You want to do a thorough cardiac evaluation for cardioembolic and other causes. You want to look at the structure of the heart. You want to look at the pump function. You want to look at rhythms as well. You know, some type of cardiac monitoring is reasonable, even if thrombogenic arrhythmias are less common in this population. You want to look for other types of vasculopathy these, whether that's less common large vessel vasculopathies like carotid web, you certainly want to make sure you're not missing a dissection in this population. 
you want to think about vasculitides and RCVS in the appropriate circumstances. And you've also got that bucket of other things, whether that is a hypercoagulable state or a thrombophilia, whether that is some type of substance associated condition, whether that is a congenital condition like Fabry disease, whether that's a Moya Moya disease or Moya Moya syndrome or Moya Moya pattern of imaging, um, ITP, as we had talked about, a number of different things that might contribute to stroke in this population. So getting back to what we talked about earlier, it's a really interesting opportunity to go through a process to be a little bit more exhaustive in your evaluation to make sure that you're not missing anything to hopefully help treat this patient's stroke and reduce the risk of future problems moving forward. Aaron, I think there's one other subject that's important for us to talk about as a potential cause of stroke in the young, and that's sickle cell anemia. Really, anemia more than trait can cause stroke in a few different ways. I think that it's, uh, it is a broad subject, and we could really have a talk in and of itself just on sickle cell anemia and stroke. But I think the important things to consider are that um, sickle cell anemia certainly can be associated with stroke, especially with a higher hemoglobin S concentration. We can sometimes measure that stroke risk using transcranial Doppler. And we have good evidence that transfusing people to a lower level of hemoglobin S can reduce their stroke risk. STOP, S-T-O-P, is a big trial that looked at that, and that's worth uh, our, our learners looking into. Beyond that, I think it's important to keep in mind that your patients may be of any age. They may be children. They may be teenagers. They may be young adults. And a stroke in the setting of sickle cell may occur in the setting of another complication, whether that's a pain crisis or something else. And that can really confound your examination. So it's important to keep your mind open to the possibility of stroke, especially if there's any focality or anything else that makes you think about possible stroke in this patient population. Uh, in addition, your sickle cell patients can develop moya moya as a consequence of sickle cell. And that is another potential uh, cause of stroke in this patient population. All right. So the big takeaways, at least for the sickle cell patients, is really having a low threshold, especially when they're coming in with additional triggers, additional acute complaints, being aware of their hemoglobin S level and the need for possible transfusion as a treatment. I think that's fair. Yeah. As a broad overview. So I think we've had a very good discussion regarding stroke in the young up to this point. We were able to lay out some of the definitions that we really think of when considering stroke in the young. So mostly thinking about patients kind of 18 to 50 years old, and then, you know, mostly considering ischemic stroke. And then we were able to discuss a little bit of the epidemiology. So the general kind of prevalence of this being 10 to 15% of strokes usually will occur in adults age 18 to 50 out of all of them. And then this kind of trend of increasing incidence over the last several decades for a number of factors, be it diagnostics or increase of modifiable risk factors. But nonetheless, most of the bulk of what we were discussing today was really a focus on the general approach and diagnostic considerations and etiologic considerations for stroke, particularly in this demographic. Despite our technologies and our best efforts, you're still going to have a good number of, of individuals with stroke in the young, 30%, 40%, sometimes more, where it ends up being cryptogenic, where we say, well, we don't know what caused your stroke. We can say that it's not this, 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 or this, and hopefully that's reassuring, but it can be challenging for your patient nonetheless to not have that answer. Thank you once again, Dr. Jasney. This has definitely been a good one. I appreciate all the help. Thank you so much for talking to me, Aaron. I really appreciate the opportunity.